What is going on, Diesel Nation? We're excited to have you guys with us today on the Diesel Podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube and aren't subscribed, make sure and click the subscribe button, like, comment. Let us know what you think about the episode. If there's a particular guest or topic that you'd like to have covered, we're always checking your comments on there and love to be able to take them and then get them on to future episodes. Today I'm going to be joined by Matt from DFC Diesel, and I wanted to ask him how he how he got started with engine building, um, where the idea came from, what the process was like growing the company, and then also get into some details with engines as far as warranties, um, different series of builds, things that customers are asking for. So I'm definitely looking forward to chatting with him today, learning more about it. Before we get to it, though, I want to remind you our friends over at Kershaw Knives have a 20% off site wide code for you. Let's go to kershaw.kaiusa.com. Use code diesel2023. It's a great way to save some money, get some really cool gear. So if you're in the market for a knife for hunting, fishing, EDC, or with the holidays, um, coming up as a gift. That's a great way to save some money, get some cool gear. They've had a ton of releases in 2023 with different uh, handle designs, blade shapes, uh, different steels you can get. So it's definitely a great time to pick up one if you're in the market for it. Use code diesel2023 to get 20% off your order. All right, let's get to today's podcast with Matt from DFC Diesel and talking about building engines. Matt, welcome back to the Diesel Podcast. I really enjoyed our last episode where we were talking about piston design and different data and feedback that you were seeing. And I know our audience really enjoyed hearing that and had a ton of uh, questions. And I, I thought it'd be great today to be able to chat more about you, DFC Diesel, the origins and, and where the idea came from to build this company that you have where your engines are distributed all over the U.S., Canada, maybe even internationally. Um, I know they're really popular here in the U.S. where I'm at and a lot of oh. shops and a lot of people talk about them. So I look forward to our conversation today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me back. Now, as far as how did this, how, how did your interest in either automotive or engine specifically start and then how did it progress to starting starting the company? Oh. Uh. I mean, I guess going way back, I probably definitely start my teenage years, but, um, you know, obviously getting, saving up and buying my first car and then obviously getting into my uh, first truck is really big into like, you know, four wheeling and off-roading and everything. And, uh, you know, I think my, the first pickup truck I had was, uh, I think 82 GMC on, you know, six inch lift and three inch body lift, 36 inch super swampers. And then naturally back then it's like, you know, you, you buy what you can and then it's always breaking so you're always trying to figure out and fix it starting out and stuff and then uh my second truck was actually uh an old 86 gm 62 diesel which that really taught me lots about repairing things <laughs> <laughs> um but uh then when i was around 18 i uh i was actually at a at a car lot and um you know i was looking at two two pickup trucks a 2065 chevy diesel and then uh 1998 uh 12 valve actually and um you know my my 6.2 ended up actually breaking down they were push starting me down the aisles of new trucks and stuff trying to get started because <laughs> it was manual transmission the starter went on it and so they they did whatever they could to get me financed to be able to buy my very first truck and so i ended up buying that uh 98 12 valve and then afterwards um at the time i was actually going to school to be a, a carpenter and then, uh, so it was about a fourth year apprentice then. And then, um, when I bought that first 12 valve, I, uh, you know, started looking on the internet, looking for, um, you know, any engine mods or anything I could do. And I came across a company, North American diesel performance up here in Edmonton, Alberta. And, you know, when I went there, I actually, uh, 
you know, started spending whatever money I had on my student line of credit and everything, trying to upgrade my truck and everything, which I'm sure relates to a lot of people out there. <laughs> and um, I got to be good friends with one of the mechanics there, letting me use the shop and everything, working working out of the shop and doing upgrades and everything. And then one of the owners there actually offered me a job because he saw, you know, I think he just saw what an enthusiast I was and that I, I really, you know, enjoyed it and just enjoyed tinkering and everything else. And then, so when I was about uh, 20 years old, I, I quit being a carpenter and I went to work, you know, for NADP, um, you know, and they were really small at the time. I mean, they, they were just, that's kind of back when like, you know, edge was just kind of getting started and stuff too. Like where I talked about, you know, early two thousands and everything. And, um, you know, and so I, cause I, I referenced edge just cause you know, I started out doing like, you know, the edge juice with attitude installs and, you know, air boxes and stuff. And then I started installing transmissions and stuff for them too. And injection pumps the first year or so they actually didn't even have a hoist. I was doing off jack stands and everything on the, the floor of their shop. And then, uh, you know, they expanded to a, a bigger building around, I think, 2005. And then uh, when we were there, then it's like, that's kind of when, you know, we had our, our really big boom in Alberta, you know, with the oil and real estate and everything else going on. So then it seemed like every every day there was someone coming in trying to, you know, spend 10 grand on their pickup and doing all these mods and stuff. So around about 2005, um, you know, back then there wasn't really anyone that, you know, outside of buying straight from a dealer, there wasn't really that we were aware of up here in Canada anyways, places that sold sold these remand diesel engines and stuff. So the common practice was, you know, if someone needed an engine, buy a good used one. So the the 2005 Cummins um, were just notorious in the in the first year or so for, for like uh, breaking piston rings because they had way too tight of end gaps on them from factory. So we're seeing trucks with like 20 you know, like 10, 20,000 miles, 30,000 miles that are breaking rings and stuff and cylinders and stuff. So they're buying all these good used engines that I'm swapping in and stuff steady. And they got to the point where they had 30 or 40 engine cores sitting in their tarp shed. Um, so I actually approached them and said, you know, hey, on my on my evenings and weekends, what would you think about me, you know, tearing apart an engine and I'll take it to the machine shop myself and they would machine it and then I'd reassemble it kind of as a contractor. So I started doing that for a couple of years and then, um, you know, I think I worked there for about six and a half years. And then, uh, uh, you know, one of the owners, I wasn't, wasn't too happy with how I was, I was being treated there and stuff. Um, I mean, I definitely feel I learned a lot of, a lot of what not to do as well as, uh, as like, as I became an employer, I learned a lot about, you know, how, how you should treat staff and, you know, you can't, you can't unsay things that are said sometimes. So Cause I, I used to, there's times I'd be working like 170 hours in two weeks and stuff. Like I was there seven days a week, nonstop. Um, and, uh, so in a couple of years as, as rebuilding the Cummins and the evenings and weekends, and then I, you know, uh, one of the local machine shops kind of put the idea in my head about, you know, machining them myself. So then, um, you know, I spent about two years and trying to figure out, you know, what's it going to cost and everything else and, um, you know, saved up money and took out lines credit and credit cards and everything else whatever and i started dfc in 2010 just started in a little 3200 square foot bay and it was just myself at the time and you know i was making good money where i was at but you know at that time so it was a definitely a big career risk but you know in my head i was like well you know i'm at the time i was building for north american probably you know about five six engines a month on my evenings and weekends and uh i was like well you know if i also did the ford and the chevy engines 
was like, I'm sure I could probably, you know, maybe build 10 engines a month sort of thing and have a helper or two and maybe take summers off or something. I mean, at the time I was 26, so it's kind of the typical entrepreneur's dream. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's definitely not the way it's gone, but uh, <laughs> not that I'm complaining, but I mean, uh, you know, I'll go through some more things too, but I mean, you know, like my, my original dream of, you know, building maybe 10 engines a month. And I mean, there's sometimes now we do 120. So wow. it's definitely significantly larger than, than I ever thought we'd get to, but you know, it still seems to be obviously demand and growing, but, um, but yeah, going back to when I started in 2010, it was, uh, you know, I still kind of followed where I would use local machine shops and, um, you know, get the, the parts machined, um, you know, and then just kind of reassemble them afterwards. So they're doing like the cylinder head work and machining and they're doing obviously all the boring and surfacing and stuff. And, you know, and it, and it wasn't too long into, you know, the start of DFC actually as, as almost facing bankruptcy because um, the machine shop that I had, like I remember I ended up warranting like 60 or 70 engines for oil consumption um, because they had, they had uh, the, the final... The final thing we figured out was they were overdue on servicing their old CK10. And so it was leaving way too rough of a finish in the cylinder bore. And then it was just chewing up the rings really bad. So we had like a thou and a half taper, a thou and a half out around everything else. And I mean, when you're only building 10 engines a month and you got a warranty 60 or 70 over the first year, it uh, it definitely hurts for sure. But, you know, as if I had to do the re and re myself, I did it on again a weekend or something and you know got the engines repaired and fixed and stuff and at that time we were i think a three or hundred thousand kilometer warranty on it and then in 2012 we uh you know i went and took out high interest loans and stuff and bought all my first rocker equipment and i was kind of thinking as like well i want as automated as pieces as possible so i'll uh um you know so i got their f69 atc in, in 2012 and i got their HP6A hone and I think an SG8M uh, surfacer or a sorry cylinder head machine and then I think a, a surfacing machine and you know and then uh, end up hiring a bunch of staff that year to help help run the equipment um, and then in 2013 is I believe when we came out with our our five year 160 160 thousand kilometer 100 thousand mile warranty and then uh, by 2014 um, we we're still growing steady this is just in Canada. And um, we uh, we took over a couple more bays. So I think in 2014, we'd grown from that 3,200 I was in all the way up to about 16,000. And then um, and then I think it was around about 2016 is when we started selling to the US market. I mean, our, our primary place we sold was through Premier Performance, um, who obviously opened up a lot, of, a lot of relationships with us, a lot of shops down in the States. And, um, we had another building move as we expanded in 2017 into our current facility. It's 32,000 square feet, um, which is still actually a comfortable size, probably to do well over 200 engines a month out of it. Um, you know, like as further on the conversation, I'd love to kind of go into like some of the, some of the things that as you scale, you start learning about engines and stuff too. Um, but uh uh, but yeah, we've been here since 2017 and, you know, I think around 2019, we've, uh, you know, started really growing in the U S again and stuff. And, uh, yeah, now, I mean, we're, we pretty much consistently sell like, you know, 100, 120 engines a month, kind of all over Canada and the U S and stuff. So. 
That's awesome. That's awesome how, you, how you've grown it. There's so many questions that I have um, with, with what you mentioned. The first one I wanted to ask you was when you mentioned kind of just starting out and a machine shop was doing the work and you had to warranty, say, six out of ten. Uh-huh. After a few months of that, did you ever think, and maybe this isn't for me, maybe this isn't going to work, maybe, maybe I don't want to take these risks. Did that thought ever cross your mind? And if it did or didn't, why was that? Was it... Um, you were just like stubborn. You wanted to accomplish it. Was it, what, what made you persevere through that? Uh, like I remember there's one point, I think it was probably, I'm going to say maybe like late 2011, early 2012. I mean, you know, I think a year or two prior, I, you know, I left a job as making, you know, a hundred and $130,000, $140,000 a year at. And then I go to loft and not taking any paychecks and stuff. And I think I was like, remember thinking is like, wow, I, I, I owe $1.4 million in debt at this point in time. And I don't have $20 to my name. <laughs> um, you know, those are definitely some pretty, uh, pretty challenging times when you face that, you know, but, you know, I was, even at that point, I was so committed to, you know, just how much, how much I enjoyed then and still enjoy now what it is I do and stuff that, you know, I was even looking at as I was like, well, you know, like maybe I could sell my house and live in the shop or something that way I'd cut out a mortgage payment and, and be able to still top it through. But um, yeah, no, I never, never once ever thought about throwing in the towel. It was just, you know, I, I feel like I've always been a very good problem solver. And so it's like, well, you know, I have a challenge and a problem here. So how am I going to solve it and get through it? Did you ever feel like when you get creative with solving a problem and you throw out a solution, it doesn't work. You throw out the fifth one, it doesn't work. The 10th the one kind of works a little bit. And then, you know, all these, they're just not, necessarily fixing everything. Um, how do you stay consistent through that? And I'm asking that question because a lot of, a lot of people, even if they're not in diesel, they'll love to hear how people persevere through challenges and, and, and tribulations. And I think this is a really good example of, you know, you went to school, you were going to do something else in, in carpentry. You worked at this other company, you found this passion, you went into it, did it, were successful, and then you started to have issues kind of from the outside, had to overcome it. And then once the financial stress hits, I find that's where a lot of people will either quit or it becomes overwhelming uh-huh. for them. So I'm genuinely curious about how you applied the problem solving skills. Maybe if it didn't work the first time, but you kept going until the 10th or 15th or 20th <laughs> solution you came to was the one that broke through. Um, I, I would definitely say, I mean, I, I'm naturally good at, uh, like I'm a very rational, logical thinker. So, I mean, I'm usually able to to kind of take a lot of emotion out of decisions. So a lot of times, you know, I know my feelings are telling me I want to do one thing, but rationally, I was like, well, this makes more sense. So there's a lot of things that, you know, at the end of the day, like frustrate me to no end, but it's still like, but this is what's going to be, you know, the right decision to make. Um, I think like, you know, as far as persevering through anything, it's, it's always about, you know, just taking taking small bites from the apple every day. I mean, you know, you chip away at it. Um, I think too often a lot of people get very frantic and uh, they change too many things at once. Um, I always have the patience to, you know, at the end of the day, okay, it's not quite going how we plan. So let's start, let's start making little incremental changes and, you know, and, and being able to wait and see how they pan out. So there's a lot of times where it's like in my head, it's like I have a solution to a problem, but the frustrating part is it's going to take six months to get there. Yeah. You know, there's no, there's no simple solution. Like I can't snap my fingers and, and say, it's like, all right, well, there's no magic, magic elixir that's going to fix this problem today. Um, you know, but 
you know, if we, if we take these steps or whatever, then this is this is how we're going to get from point A to point B. I was actually given uh, um, this is a little off topic, on topic, but uh, I think it's just kind of some good advice that I I was given. Um, you know, several years ago, I mean, we had a consulting firm that came in because we around 2017 we started using a lot of uh, like we when it came to hiring people in our company, we started uh, looking at doing kind of more behavioral profiles. You know, trying to get the right fit of of mentality for the the positions within the company because it's kind of like even though there's multiple metrics we look at, I mean, it's kind of like, imagine a person that likes a lot of variety and change and you try and get them to do a repetitious, monotonous job every day, you're going to have, you know, what's like disruptive behavior. So you have to get someone that like, likes the consistency of doing the same thing over and over and naturally feels comfortable out to get the best results. And so some of the advice they gave me was, you know, I described um, kind of in a little bit more detail than what I did earlier to them about where I came from and how a lot of the growth and, and success that we've had has been based on, you know, I had problems and challenges and I was able to solve them. But he he really told me, he's like, you know, Matt, that's a, that's a great story, but, you know, we're going to get you some very, very highly motivated people in here that um, are going to want to like, you know, really put a lot of energy behind it. And so it, it's really important that you give them a direction to go much like a ship where you, know, you can't have like a, a cruise ship without a destination. So if you ultimately have somewhere you're planning on being, you need to start communicating that more about, hey, this is the end result. So if everyone sees where the where you're actually pushing towards, it's a lot easier to all row in the same direction as opposed to, all right, well, we're going to go out and we're going to, you know, keep the ship clean and we're going to, you know, kind of go where <laughs> the weather's best and all these other things, but not actually have uh, well, where we actually headed. That makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the next question that I have, it's going to tie in with what you mentioned about wanting to talk about scaling the business at, through growth. So it was probably, I don't know the exact year, it's probably around the time you had mentioned um, Premier taking the product line on and distributing uh-huh. it. Because I worked for a company in the diesel industry and I dealt mostly <clears throat> like selling their products. But every now and then I would get a local guy that would come in and want something. So I got to deal a little bit with the service side, not very much. Uh, anywhere to be proficient. But I remember the the guys are talking about DFC engines. And prior to that, I'd never heard of the company. And they were, I think there was some flyers or something they handed me and I was looking at it. And I just, I was really impressed with the warranty, the options. And there was nothing there at that time that I ever came across where you could have this complete solution. And so that was my first impression. But I know from, from our chat today, there was a lot of work beforehand to get to that point. Well, as you've grown from that time till now, what has the scaling been like with production, manufacturing, hiring, marketing, like all the aspects that go into building a company that you operate on a whole continent? You know, I hear people talk about your products here, you know, in the U.S. or even in Colorado. So you've grown it to this level where people know the name. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the uh, it was probably. It was actually fairly recent, like about 2022. Um, that was a big eye-opening experience for me because something that I actually really took it for granted that I never really thought of is to me, I was like, you know, I understand my business so well. I understand every single part of it. I understand what what it needs to do at all times, what we need to achieve, put things in order, so on and so forth. 
but 2022, like when we were, I think we had, you know, I think at the peak, like 330 sold engines behind. Um, what it really taught me that I'd taken for granted was that um, remanufacturing where you're using like a used parts in terms of like a block, a crank, so on and so forth, new parts and people. And I'm not downplaying any other business or anything else, but I mean, it's incredibly challenging. And, and so the problem that I actually realized was that, uh, you know, uh, it, it's near, I think it's near impossible for anyone that I ever hire, like whether it's a manager or anything else to actually like have, because like for me, like DFC is like an extension of myself. So it's like, you know, I understand kind of its its needs and, and everything else at all times, but um, it's very difficult for any person coming in to see the whole, like the big picture as to why things need to work a certain way. Cause I mean, every, I'd probably say every 10 engines per month of production we add, um, creates a whole new host of challenges. It's not like, Hey, we added another 50 a month. It's like, literally it's as sensitive as 10 engines a month can make a difference because I think like compared to a lot of other manufacturing, because with the used parts, we're also including like uh, core charges in them. So think like we could have a run where from the time we ship engines out to the time we get them back, a lot of times let's say it's about a three or four month window. So if we're shipping, let's say a lot of Duramaxes out month one, and then a lot of Cummins out month two, and then a lot of Ford out month three, well, month four comes along and we're trying to build a lot of Cummins, but we're getting a lot of Duramaxes back. So you have to have both enough core supply to continue kind of feeding a machine, getting engines out the door. But when the engines come back, you have to be able to tear them down, get people's their core assessment money back. You have to make sure that what we're getting back is salvageable and that we can actually rebuild it to another engine. And then we have to, you know, still have it where, you know, you have parts that come back that, you know, you do core credits on and then it goes through production and they end up being cracked or not repairable or anything else. And then you end up throwing them out anyways. And you get to the point where, you know, you've already ordered all these new parts and sometimes you have it where, you know, like we have a standard list of new parts that goes into every engine we build. So it's really tough when sometimes like, you know, you could order in 300 engines worth of parts and find out that there's one model that, you know, you're short one $5 part for every engine. And all of a sudden I can't ship out 300 engines because I'm short, you know, one $5 part <laughs> times 300. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so when you start balancing all those things out, it becomes incredibly complicated with the moving parts. And then, you know, um, and then 2022, I, I guess the reason I referenced that year was because, you know, just like I think all companies and during COVID, they suffered from some of the labor shortages and stuff. And, you know, we, like our teardown department, for example, I mean, a lot of times we could put an ad up for people to do, you know, engine dismantling and cleaning, prepping parts. And we'd get, you know, sometimes two or 300 applicants a week in 2021, but in 2022, we get like four applicants a month. So then it's like, you know, it, it, uh, it was tough, I think for even my management, because sometimes I think they put up with, uh, poor, bad attitudes of some people that we hired because we couldn't do the behavioral profiling anymore because we didn't have enough applicants for the pool. So then we, they would hire century bodies and, you know, we, we got the results of that sometimes, you know, where it's just, you know, they're, they're inefficient or they, they don't do the quality of work you set out. I think that's the most frustrating thing as me as an owner is like, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about what I do and I want to always like be able to offer the best product we possibly can to our customers. And, 
sometimes, you know, I don't ever want to make excuses because it's ultimately like, you know, my name and reputation behind it. But, um, you know, if you hire a, if you hire a staff member and they, they generally don't care about, you know, doing a good job and they're just there for a paycheck. I mean, the checks and balances as a business owner, you have to put in to make sure that person doesn't disrupt, you know, what you're setting up to do is very, very challenging. Um, that's actually why, you know, in 2023 here, to try and help alleviate that, like, I mean, obviously the labor markets uh, gotten a lot better, but in February, we started down the process of getting ISO 9001 certified, and we actually do our final audit on, uh, I think, December 12th to 13th. Because to me, that was just another way of saying it's like, you know, we've put in the processes and steps, the checks, the balances, the the means to ensure that when we rebuild a product, we can stand behind it and say like, hey, this is the best best quality engine that you're going to be able to buy. Um, you know, we've done everything. We've done everything right on our end. We're not, I'll never promise anyone they're not going to have a warranty because let's face it, everything fails. Like there's no manufacturer out there that can ever say you'll never have a problem with my product. Because again, it's like, you know, a block could crack, a head could crack, a crank could break. I mean, they, these things are out of our control and that's why we have warranty. But as far as like trying to eliminate the chances of having just a careless human mistake, we're doing the best we can to eliminate that anyways. And then for the the warranties that may still happen, that's still why, like, I mean, um, like I redid like in 2013, we definitely had like the best warranty in, in all of North America by far. And then in uh, for January 2023, I actually overhauled our warranty again. And I can still confidently say like we by far have the best warranty, the most comprehensive coverage out of any manufacturer, period. Because I went through every manufacturer's warranty and I saw like, you know, what can we offer that's better? So, I mean, we... Um, while everyone else is increasing costs and everything, we actually raised our labor, our standard labor rate that we would cover things to from $50 to $100 an hour. We have an elite service plan that someone can actually increase their coverage up to $150 an hour. Um, and includes, you know, like there's caps on things, but there's things for like towing coverage and uh, shop supplies, freight, um, rental vehicle, things like that. Because to me, uh, one of the, I touched on in our last call, but I think one of the things that when we're saying we're trying to offer the best value we can to the customers, it's um, it's trying to like say it's like, you know, what what is it that when we're not only building the engine, but offering the warranty is going to kind of cover as many challenges as they might have in front of them as possible and know that they were there to stand behind our product. That's one of the, I think when I've read stories or I've talked with people and they've had a failure with any part and one, they're upset because their truck's not running or they can't use it or get to work. So they're already upset. And then whenever I've thought, I think I've even done maybe an episode or two over the years about warranties and and understanding what they mean is a company will say, okay, well send it back to us, get it to us, but we're not going to pay the labor rate or, yeah, I've I've seen lots of conversations with labor rates going up over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and it's like these things that I don't know if most consumers really read them. I I would hope they would. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if they do. And and they find out when they're upset. Okay, labor's not covered, shipping's not covered, none of these yeah. things are covered. It just sets them off to another level. So I think that's really important that you mentioned it and for us to talk, uh, talk a bit about is like, what does a warranty really mean? Because Uh sometimes I think 
when we're out there looking to buy products, we get thrown numbers or we get thrown time or mileage or something like that, but you really have to read it and understand it. And well, I, I think it'd be good for our audience to hear the, the emphasis that you put on it and, and what it really means. Well, and, I mean, it's like when you go through pretty much, um, you know, any, any other manufacturer's warranty out there, I mean, obviously everyone's warranty is a limited warranty. So, I mean, Essentially, that that would mean that you know there's well we cover X amount, but it's not an unlimited amount. So I mean, you know, if if a shop decides they want to charge you know eighty hours to re and re something, you know, it's not going to pay out eighty hours, right? I mean, most warranties ours included is based off of things like you know Mitchell or Chilton or you know whatever uh, with a standard time that a competent mechanic with good hand tools and stuff can swap out an engine at. Um, you know, and there's obviously exceptions to certain things, whatever, but, um, you know, the labor rate was really interesting one because, you know, I, I'm definitely probably like, I'd definitely say DFC and, and anyone doing, you know, especially engines or transmissions or whatever would definitely be more attuned, more, in, um, more sensitive this than a lot of other shops out there, but you know, prior to 2022 in the U.S., it was pretty uncommon to actually see labor rates above about 130 bucks an hour. Because think, like, if we ever get a warranty claim for a seal leak or whatever else, I mean, um, you know, we get them to fill out a warranty approval form, and it's part of it's like, well, what's your shop labor rate? And I mean, most warranties pay out similar to like an insurance deductible. So, you know, if if your house floods, I mean, you know, you still have to pay the first five thousand dollars of the repair and the insurance company pays the rest or if someone breaks in your car and breaks a window you still have a 500 deductible and then they paid the balance and in a lot of the ways that that keeps things fair and it keeps people from abusing it so they won't just submit claims for the sake of submitting a claim but uh you know when when we were we kind of had an unwritten rule it wasn't in our warranty but i, I think that this this really gave us a lot of credibility in the industry is we had a thing where if someone had a this was up until the end of 2022 anyways. Um, if someone had a problem the first 90 days and, um, you know, and, and it got, was determined that it was our fault or something and we made a mistake, I was typically paying the full shop bill. So I'd pay hundred percent of shop labor, you know, the, you know, all the freight, all the shop supplies, everything else. And I mean, for, you know, for the rare occurrence that happened, it wasn't that big a deal. You know, it definitely sucks when, you know, at the time you pay $130, $140 an hour. Um, but as we got into 2022, it's like shops that used to be $90 an hour are now $140. Shops that used to be $130 are now $170. I mean, it, it the, the I saw a greater increase in one year in the average shop rate in 2022 than I did in the previous 12 years of business. Um, you know, and, and it definitely happened a lot worse in the US than it did in Canada. I didn't see the labor rates in Canada go up near as much. Um, but even still, it, it, as opposed to like clamping down further and trying to figure out, gee, how are we going to get out of denying even more? Um, we went the opposite direction, which was like, all right, well, how can we again add more value to our customers? So we looked at things and we're like, well, um, like I'll kind of use an analogy about healthcare. I mean, Healthcare, a lot of people think that good healthcare is free, but the best healthcare is choice. Um, you know, you want the ability to choose what's ultimately right for you based off of your own needs and stuff. So when we redid our warranty in 2023, we increased the standard standard labor payout to $100 an hour coverage. So I mean, it's best in the industry for a standard payout. 
I think the next closest is maybe $95 or $90 an hour behind it, but most around the $50 to $70 range. Um, so we're paying out more initially, which again, you know, if a shop's $130, $140 an hour, that means that if there was a failure um, and it was 30 hours to repair, I mean, we would pay $3,000 and then the customer would pay, you know, $40 an hour times 30. So they'd pay $1,200 and that would be their, their portion of it. But we gave the option where a customer can buy our elite service plan that now increases the labor rate to $150 an hour. So if if a customer wants a security to know that hey, if you have a problem um, and you don't want to be surprised by a bill down the road, then that $150 should in general cover probably about 90 plus percent of any bill that they would get. Because, you know, let's say the shop is $160 an hour, well, they're going to pay, you know, 300 bucks, which isn't, isn't as bad a bill to swallow, right? right. Um, but if, if that's not as big deal for them, we're not going to build it into the price of our, our engine just to give it to everyone right up front. Because like even now, like with, with the new car manufacturers, I mean, look, like the price of a new truck's gone up 20 grand and they're coming back with like low interest rates they're offering people because they're like, well, we'll just tack on an extra 10 grand into the price and then tell you we're, we're going to finance it to you cheaper. <laughs> um, again, going that route, I don't think would add value to the customer. So by keeping, we're trying to keep the cost of our engine down as low as we can. So it's, it's more valuable to the customer, but then give them that choice that if they do want the extra coverage, it's at least there for them. Well, and it also, it also accommodates the varied labor rates that are around the country. Cause if you think of, I'm sure you know better than I do, but just my limited knowledge is what a shop charges in New York or New Jersey or California is going to be different than say Kansas or oh. Nebraska or a state like that. So you have those options for people if they are in areas where it's just, they cost more to live, cost more to do business. Yeah. They, they do have that option. Does the ultimate confidence in how you warranty the product and what you offer come from those processes that you mentioned um, you touched on, you know, with, with staff and things like that, but then also with the technology that you have, the machines, the, 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 the QC processes, um, through building an engine, is that where the ultimate confidence comes from? Like, um, like one, I, I, at the end of the day, like, I mean, one, it, I take a great deal of pride. Like, I mean, I love hearing someone say how they, you know, had such great success with their engine or, um, or how much they love our product, all those other things. Like, um, which is you know that's like part of like why it is we do what we do but um how do i want to phrase it like the one nice thing like i i, I feel like we've still been a, a really positive um a really positive influence to the general industry like i said when i when i came out the first five-year hundred thousand mile warranty i mean it didn't exist and i mean now there's there's a couple in the states and there's a couple in canada that um you know similar to ours but you know, I, I think that's a great thing to see other people that are coming out with warranties like that, because at the end of the day, you know, you could very well have like a performance shop that, you know, just puts everything in new, like, and when I say new, like, you know, they could even go to the level like, hey, here's a new cylinder head, here's a new crank, here's new rods, here's everything else. And I mean, you know, for sure, I mean, that would probably definitely increase the likelihood of not having a problem and stuff. But then, if you're going to put everything in new and you're going to pretty much offer like a one-year parts only warranty on it, why do you only stand behind it with such a limited warranty? 
So I think that any company out there that starts offering more extended warranties, you know, and by extended, I would say anytime it's about three years or longer, I think that's always going to, um, always going to make whichever company that does that into a, into an even better, more efficient um, remanufacturer because like if a, if a company offers a one-year warranty and the engine comes back after two years, um, I think a lot of places may just be like, all right, well, um, you know, there's no warranty on it. And yeah, you know, they might offer a reduced rate for the next one, but I don't know if they learn as much from that failure as we would, because, you know, if we have something come back, you know, four or five years later, like occasionally you'll still have something come back where it's like right on the tail end of it. And it's like, you know, you look at it, it's like, you know, I really broke down our warranty department to look at things a couple different ways. And it's like, we have um, avoidable, non-avoidable and preventable warranty categories when we're looking at things like avoidable is, you know, we, we genuinely made a mistake. It was our fault. Someone didn't torque something or it was a wrong clearance or something. Um, Non-avoidable is like, well, you know, 60,000 miles after we sold the engine, a connecting rod breaks in half or a rod bolt breaks. I mean, for the most part, those things are fairly unavoidable and that's why we have warranty. Um, The preventable ones are, you know, okay, what came back, it only lasted 100,000 kilometers. Is there anything that we can offer now such as like, uh, uh, I'll use uh, the six six four uh, six point four liter Ford as an example. This one, so we started building lots of them in 2013, and when it first came out, uh, you know, like we're we're looking at them. It's like, well, it has four cylinder head bolts, just like the six liter. Yes, they're 16 mil versus 14 mil, but um, you know, we had such good success with the six liter head studs why wouldn't we want to um use them in the 6.4 and what we found was that uh you know about was it if we saw one in 50 engines come back um you know with a premature head gasket failure with stock bolts we were seeing about one in 10 engines come back with blown head gaskets with the arp studs and the difference was was the one in 50 the stock gaskets they were usually the gaskets would fail both banks blown out every cylinder. It was more of a timing or tuning issue because guys are running like, you know, 250, 300 horse tunes in them. And, um, you know, just the stock bolts couldn't handle it. But the one in 10 that we were seeing at the ARP bolts, it was usually a case where it was blown out one small area of the gasket and uh, nowhere else on the other bank. And what it actually is, is the 6.4 Ford, um, the three center bolts closest to the valley on either side we'd actually find that they, the block would contour to the coarse end thread of the stud. So the first time you torque it down, you torque them all to 300 foot pounds. It puts on 10,000 miles. It fails. You put a torque wrench back on it. You'll have one bolt that turns at like 250, 260 because it lost its torque on that thread of the bolt. And if you repaired it, it usually never came back again because the block had already contoured to that stud. What's interesting is in 2015, we also had to start pressure testing every single long block we did um, after we torqued the heads on because those same three bolt holes on either side, they'll crack and then they'll leak coolant up the stud. And even like even with a stud torque to 300 foot pounds, it'll spray like a, you know, a four inch long stream of coolant up between the threads of the nut and the stud. And so then we got to take it apart, throw the block out. And it's no good to us. So anyways, the, Going back to the preventable thing, it's like, 
when we saw about one in 10 were failing with uh, ARP studs in 2016, we just started doing it where, you know what, every, um, every single six, four we build is going to come with O-ringed heads and, you know, knock on wood. Now all of a sudden head gasket failures and six fours are virtually a non-existent issue. So there's something where we could change a process, do something better. And then it just, you know, adds more value to our customer. The downside I will say <laughs> is a year or two after we started O-ringing every single cylinder head, then we had a significant increase in people cracking pistons because it removed the fusible link of the head gasket failing and transferred it onto the piston. So it's kind of like you fix one problem and it creates another. <laughs> so that's where that process from a longer warranty and <clears throat> being married to this engine for longer allows you to get really valuable feedback and then analyze it develop a solution. And so I, like, as time goes on, I think it just builds this incredible library, so to speak of yeah. knowledge and, and fixes. And it's really interesting to hear, hear the stories. Like I said, it was, it was just something in passing where I'd heard of the company and I really enjoyed our last chat, but to hear the story of how you've grown it and scaled it is, is really inspiring. And it, the next thing it leads me to think is what about the future? What are some things that you're looking at into 2024 and beyond as it relates to not just your, your business, but then also the changing diesel market and well, the type of trucks people are buying and the type of needs that they have. I mean, they're uh, like remanufacturing as a whole. I mean, there's, there's definitely headwinds ahead for not just ourselves, but a lot of other companies. I mean, more of these newer diesel engines are just becoming more and more throwaway engines. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the older diesels, when they failed, we could generally like, you know, go back, remachine, rebuild and and often make them better. But I mean, like the 6.7 Ford, for example, I mean, the vast majority of the cores you get back, I mean, we're throwing out the block and the crank, like like probably in excess of 50% of every every 6.7 Ford we build comes with a brand new block and a brand new crank. Um, you know, and that's becoming more commonplace. And I think all the engines is just as they age, problems that we didn't have when the engines had 50,000 miles on it become a lot more common when they have 250,000 miles. So the, the cores are deteriorating faster. Um, and sorry to back up a bit. I mean, I remember back when I first started in North at NADP in around 2004, back then everyone was like, you know, if I could only get like 400 horse and a thousand foot pounds, it'd be perfect. Well, now <laughs> we got that. And in general, the engines, you know, they're they're lasting good. They're making the power. They're they're not overheating. They're they're towing like just incredible amounts of weight and stuff and living. But they've definitely been creative in how they built in what I referenced is to be fusible links. That if you modify them very much past factory, they're just when they fail, they're not just failing. They're also taking the core with it. So I mean, I think this industry as a whole is going to face some headwinds of. You know, if you want to stay in the remanufacturing game, um, the amount that we're going to have to start purchasing or even casting our own blocks or heads or whatever at local foundries, because I mean, even some of the aftermarket heads are getting, I mean, you know, we got, we have every, every aftermarket casting we buy, we treat like a core because um, I don't ever have the confidence to say that, hey, we could just bolt this on an engine. So um you know, it'd be great to find better, like, you know, American foundries, whatever, that could start doing that one day. Um, you know, and in, into 2024, I also hope that we can start getting into some of the newer models of, because uh, right now we we currently only do up to the 2019 six, seven Fords, um, the 2018 Cummins and the 2016 Duramaxes. 
Um, but we had plans in 2024 to start getting into the other ones. And um, we are looking at even doing some of like the, the half ton diesels and stuff as well. And, and obviously, uh, you know, the, like we talked about the last episode, there's, there's a lot of future opportunities with uh, that speed of error piston technology too. So. Yeah. I think there's a lot of cool things that are, that are coming up and there's always that delay when, uh, you know, a newer truck's out, it's under warranty. People keep the truck till it's under warranty. Then they start to either add power or do modifications to it. And that's where the cascading effect of failures and and all that's it. It feels like it's going to happen really quick. And I, I think, that is going to be the biggest challenge is what companies are positioned to be able to solve those solutions where in the past you had a five, nine fail and you know, it's, you could remachine it, throw some better parts in it, send the guy cool. down the road. It might not be the case on these newer ones. So that I could yeah. see how that, that would be a major challenge. Yeah. With, um, with being able to see what you guys are working on doing, um, a lot of people asked with our last episode about the data and the, and the testing from the, the pistons and, and the engines. Where can people find that information or contact you guys and, and ask questions? Because I, a lot of times listeners will ask me, and I'm not an expert in it by yeah. any means, so I always re, you know, refer back to the guests. But I want to make sure people, um, it's easy for them to be able to connect with you guys, ask questions about anything that you guys build, about the warranty, about getting an engine. What's the best way? Um. Well, I mean, I guess yeah, there's gets a couple of questions there. I mean, as far as the data, I mean, on the on the speed of air stuff goes, I mean, all the data we've collected, I mean, about primary because we're still we're still doing additional tests and we're still, you know, ultimately like uh going for some certifications and stuff to, you know, so we actually have it where it's like, hey, here's here's proven technology according to the, you know, these uh you know, these different three and four letter agencies and stuff, whatever that, you know, say that uh you know, hey, the, this is emissions compliant. This is actually reducing emissions, everything. So we're working on those things to hopefully have out here um, very, very soon. And then that's when we'll actually start posting some of the results. I mean, I'm always happy to like, you know, just verbally say some of the things that we've been seeing. I mean, um, you know, the, you know, whenever we've like said things like, let's say like a 20 to 80% drop in NOx, I mean, you know, those are de- depending on different loads of, of, uh, different different engine loads when we've been on the dyno but i mean um i'm very comfortable saying it's like everything we've seen has been about a drop of about 50 percent carbon and 50 percent nox out of these engines and stuff on that testing um you know i myself anytime someone emails me i'm still happy to always kind of like answer any direct questions they have it's just mad at dfcdiesel.com um you know we do have our online quoting and stuff the the one thing that's i guess kind of unique about dfc is because we're we don't do repair work. We don't sell much for parts. We're primarily just an engine manufacturer. So we don't, don't always have like the level of uh, front end sales staff to help answer some of these questions, which is why I think sometimes it seems like we're a little bit more on the quiet side about that. Um, you know, cause I, again, like a lot of other shops might have like, you know, four or five dedicated sales staff just for selling parts and everything. Whereas for us, like um, we just sell engines. So um we only usually have one or two people, whatever, taking sales and then, uh, or direct sales calls. And then after that, it's, uh, mainly we just get a lot of emails and stuff. So it's usually some of the best ways to communicate if you have specific questions. Very cool. It's engines and transmission. Those are my two, two of my favorite, I'll put it that way. Two of my favorite topics to discuss about diesel trucks. And 
it's, I know it's a really complex topic and there's so many different directions and things we could chat about with Uh what kind of failures do you see on particular engines? Are there a lot of them? Um, there's a lot of, a lot of things that, uh, I think we could cover, you know, chatting in the, in the future because a lot of listeners have those questions. They want to know, Hey, this truck that I just bought or that it's a couple years old, is it going to last? And they, they want to find solutions before they're in crisis mode and want to know where to go. So I think that there's, there's a lot that that we can chat about, but it was fantastic hearing the story of, of DFC and the background and the growth. And there's a lot of inspiration there that people can find, even if they don't work in diesel, maybe they have a different company in general, but they're right in that same spot you were where it's like, okay, I've got to, I got to change something. I've got to logically approach this. How do I persevere through it? That's one of my favorite, uh, favorite things to talk about you know on the podcast in addition to truck so i appreciate your time today matt and going into detail with us and talking to us more about your company yeah no thanks for having me so yeah it's uh like i said i'm sure i could always talk for hours about it but it's it's definitely been a it's been a long road that's gone by very quickly though (laughs) don't forget diesel fans make sure and head on over to kershaw.kaiusa.com use code diesel 2023 for 20 percent off site-wide it's a great way to save some money get some really cool gear so if you're in the market for a knife for hunting fishing edc um, as a gift or to give a gift you know with the holidays coming up it's a great way to save some money and get some really cool gear also want to give a shout out to some of our patreon supporters tyler low and a 23 diesel j cole john all of our other patreon supporters all of you who subscribe on youtube and podcast apps follow us on social media we appreciate all your support here near seven of the diesel podcast and look forward to bringing you more of the content that you want to hear in 2020 2024 until next time keep the shiny side up